Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.30 a.m., Thursday, February 21st. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Good morning. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let us start with some numbers. They are interesting, I promise. On Wednesday, we got the government's official projections of health spending for the next decade. They come from the Office of the Actuary at the Department of Health and Human Services. And they say, surprise, that health spending is going to start going up faster than it has in recent years. Um, So you guys all looked at the report, right? What's going to drive this spending? I want to sort of go around the table and have each of you, you know, tell you what jumped out at you from this report, because obviously we don't have time or probably inclination to talk about everything that was in it. Anna, why don't you start? I think the main um, one of the main drivers of the spending that is supposed to grow faster than it has been is um, the baby boomer population is going to be moving more from private insurance to Medicare. They're going to need more services. They're going to need you know more health care, more prescriptions as they age. And so that is going to add. I think that was one of the main drivers for this. Those darn baby boomers. Right. <laughs> 10,000 10, of whom a day are becoming eligible for Medicare. Alice, what what jumped out at you? Well, as we're having such a political fight over the idea of Medicare for all, um, I think this will add a lot of fodder and and ammunition to that because it showed that um, spending in under private insurance is going up way faster than costs under under public insurance. And so for those arguing that this could actually save instead of cost the country in the long run, they have now some some uh, data points to point to, although, again, they're projections. They are projections. Yes. Yeah. Kimberly, you also you found something really quirky in this report. Sure, sure. Well, first, I also want to add to uh, what we're talking about in terms of uh, driving health care spending is the prices of the uh, service health care goods and services. So whether that's prescription drugs, doctor care, the care you receive from hospitals. So you not only have a population that needs more care, but that care will grow to be more expensive. Right now, the projections show that prescription drugs will rise, spending will rise at a faster rate than that of doctors and hospitals. But CMS actuaries said to us on a call yesterday, prescription drugs for them is really the biggest unknown. And Anna can probably speak better to this than I can. But um, just because of the drugs that might hit the market or the drugs that then might be pulled off the market because of safety issues. So even though you have a quickening that's going to occur uh, with pharmaceuticals, um, it, it might in the end, and of course these are all projections, and so they could you know turn out to be um, completely off the mark. But um, they show you know that the pharmaceuticals to them are are the are appear to be faster, but may end up actually slowing as we've kind of seen in more recent years. And it was interesting. I guess it was two weeks ago we talked about the study that found that giving particularly cardiovascular meds to older people actually reduced costs overall. One of sort of the first rigorous studies that found that prevention among 
people who are not children can actually save money in healthcare. It was always sort of it, it was thought among the healthcare academic community that prevention is a good thing to do, and it definitely helps the people for whom things are being prevented. But in the aggregate, it didn't save money unless, you, like you know, immunizations for kids saves money. But but once once you pretty much get above eighteen, prevention hadn't been shown to save money until this study, and it mm-hmm. was interesting because it was about seniors and drugs, the two things that we're talking about, mm-hmm. mostly with health spending going up. And I think that study, you know, was looking, and I, I've mentioned this at sort of the older, they're older drugs, so they're all generic, like either blood pressure or cholesterol drugs. And cheap. And cheap, yeah. And so one of the things the... Um, cheaper. That, <laughs> right, that's true. Um, one of the things the actuaries um, talked about that makes their prescription drug uh, projections so hard for them is that there are new drugs that come on the market. They don't know how many are going to come on the market each year. Like some years it's close to 60, some years in the 30s. And so that they have a tougher time. And those are the ones that are really expensive and that can cost the health system a lot of money. Kimberly, I want to go back to something that you were saying, though, about the price, because that's always been sort of the hallmark of the U.S. health system. It's not that that Americans consume that much more health care than other industrialized countries, but that our prices are so much higher. And that's why we spend so much more money. And this study suggested that that's not about to change. I mean, obviously, unless something happens and Congress or the president changes it. But but given current trends, that's going to continue, right? And, and a lot of the political conversation deals with prescription drugs. However, doctors and hospital spending take up more a larger percentage of spending than prescription drugs do. So even though you're going to see potentially a faster rate of prescription drugs, it is still projected to be about 10% of healthcare spending, whereas hospitals and doctors take up a larger proportion of about, uh, I think, a 30% for hospitals and 20% for doctors. And that has a lot to do with, you know, how much healthcare costs and how much we spend on it. And, and one more thing before we leave this, um, several people were mentioning that the fact that they're projecting spending to go up so much or so much faster would in sort of an odd way, make it easier for the the Medicare for all folks um, because there would be less of a gap between mm-hmm. what that would cost and what the government's already spending, particularly with, you know, um, spending going up in Medicare. You would have to raise less money to, to cover the amount between what Medicare for all would cost and what the health care, what the government part of health care is going to cost any anyway. Is, is that a is that one of sort of the, 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 the quirks of, of health spending sort of rising a little more rapidly. Yeah, and I think we're already um we've already seen that point be made. The study that um a lot of conservatives have pointed to to say that Medicare for all would be prohibitively expensive um comes um from the Mercatus Center and um but that not a liberal think tank. No, very conservative, um sort of libertarian bent um and they put a 3.2 uh, trillion uh, dollar figure on there and uh, folks who are for Medicare for All quickly pointed out that that was actually less than doing nothing and allowing our current system to continue to to grow would cost. And so I think that this is just further along that ra- by raising the cost of uh, keeping things as they are, it makes an alternative potentially more attractive. Right. They projected, was it $3.6 trillion in 2019, I believe. Day the Mercatus? Um, the, no. Um, no the, oh, the, actu- the actuary. The actuary. The actuary. So yeah. it is a little bit less than the mm-hmm. one Mercatus came up with. But it also makes certain assumptions about how much people are getting uh, reimbursed for Medicare. And when you 
uh, point to these kinds of projections to the healthcare industry and you say, look, we save so much money, all they see is look how much money you're going to be cutting from the healthcare mm-hmm. industry. So they would say that the consequences of, of reducing spending on healthcare would ultimately end up, um, you know, causing longer wait times and things like that. So that's the argument that um, industry groups are making as they mm-hmm. really fight to, I mean, they form these coalitions, these anti-Medicare for all coalitions to try to push back against um, what's going on. So and we're already seeing the first ads from those coalitions come out, um, videos saying exactly what Kimberly was saying. It has begun. It has begun, even <laughs> though the debate in Congress has not even begun yet. <laughs> you know, that's sort of begun, too. <laughs> we'll, we'll certainly see more. Not officially. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to move on. Uh, and I want to talk about diet supplements. Um, while we were doing our special Medicare for All episode last week, and if you missed it, uh, you should go back and listen, please. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration was announcing a crackdown yet again on diet supplements. Now, for those of you who were not following health policy yet in the Clinton administration, some people at the table, I think, might not have been born yet. Uh, <laughs> supplement makers successfully lobbied Congress, and boy, it was quite a, a lobbying uh, assault. Uh, and Congress agreed to limit the FDA's ability to regulate everything from vitamins to weight loss aids to herbal remedies. Basically, FDA can only act when it becomes clear that a supplement is dangerous or more often that it contains an FDA-regulated drug, which supplements are not allowed to do, uh, since Deshay, as the law is called, was passed. The supplement industry has grown from about $4 billion a year to about $50 billion a year. 75% of Americans take a supplement every day, according to FDA. So what, short of getting Congress to act again, can FDA really do about supplements that don't do what they claim or might actually be dangerous? And you cover the FDA. Right, yes. Um, well, what Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, said he was going to do last week is um, crack down on enforcement. So do, you know, they send these warning letters. Um, you'll kind of see them, I'll see them go by pretty often about, you know, this uh, this rhino supplement that ha- actually has the drug Viagra in it or, you know, something <laughs> laughable like that. But it happens actually, that's a the, lot. That's the, I would say that's the most common <laughs> yeah. thing when they go after these supplements is that they have Viagra in Right. Them. And that can be harmful to, like, you know, to people's hearts So if, if they aren't supposed to be on it. So, um, you know, they've done those. But really, you know, there's not a, um, a sustained sort of effort at the FDA because they're – they have a lot, they have a huge portfolio you know drugs tobacco medical devices food uh, food <laughs> and so they also have cosmetics and dietary supplements and those two things just don't have the funding they don't have the laws behind them to really do anything um, and so what Scott Gottlieb talked about was doing more enforcement, which is helpful and I think people really want because, you know, there have been stories here and there where what's in our supplements is not what you think. You're not getting the amount of the vitamin that you think you're getting. Um, what I found interesting was he also talked about possibly doing some policy changes he wasn't very specific about them, but he called it, you know, like the most sweeping thing on supplements in 25 years. I thought that was maybe a little extra. Um, I think that <laughs> yeah, there have been periodic. I mean, we went through the you know the whole thing with steroids and weight building supplements, and there were congressional hearings, and I mean that was a big deal. So there have been various crackdowns since 1994. It's just the FDA doesn't have a lot of power to do very much. Right? They can't like they can't make a dietary supplement maker um, submit an application for approval, which, you know, could really change then people's understanding of what's in their supplements, but that, you know, they can't do that. And so... I think they don't even have to submit a full ingredients list to the FDA. Yeah, there's... there's, So, you know, 
even that something like that typically takes an act of Congress, like for tobacco to submit an ingredient list. They had to, it was an act of Congress to do that from tobacco companies. So I think, um, you know, there are times every now and then where the commissioner comes out. It's not every time, but he says he's going to do a big sweeping thing and it's maybe not as big as, as he says. And I think this is one of those times where enforcement is good, but I don't think that he can, um, he has the policy ability to do a whole lot more and it will take take Congress. And he did say in the statement that he wants to have a discussion with Congress about this and what else can be done. Do we think Congress has, has any desire to, to wade back into the to the diet supplement? I mean, it is it's a fifty billion dollar industry, so pretty much it's like hospitals. Pretty much every member of Congress has a supplement maker, or certainly supplement sellers in their uh, in their districts and or states, mm-hmm. and they they are not shy about showing up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I mean, usually it takes some kind of a big, you know, news story or something going really wrong in order for Congress to start holding hearings and then thinking about whether, you know, they might try to react or even maybe if the FDA sets forth some recommendations saying, you know, this, these are places where Congress can, you know, act according to what's going on. Because there's probably a lot of stuff that, you know, we're not aware of. A lot of this stuff is sold on Amazon. They try to crank down on it on their end, but, you know, they don't always get it. Um, so, you know, people are getting their supplements just from so many different like online sites and who knows what's in them. And I think there's a connection between um, prescription drugs and traditional medicine being so prohibitively expensive for a lot of people and the appeal of these somewhat shady sort of new agey in some cases, like wellnessy branded. Uh, and I love you get these long industries. ads at the yeah. end because it's required by the FTC. You know, these claims Side are not intended yes. to, to, you know, uh, to, to provide any health benefit. Or right, anything. right. Um, and so I think think that for people who, um, you know, can't afford to go see an actual doctor, this could be very attractive. And so I think it's it's sort of all part of the same problem. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens with this. And it is interesting that, that I think you're right, Scott Gottlieb is sort of going into every corner of everything that the FDA yes. regulates and saying, we're actually going to regulate this yeah. stuff, <laughs> which, which shouldn't feel novel, but it does. <laughs> all right. Um, clearly, we can't go a week without talking about the Affordable Care Act. This week, I want to talk about cost-sharing reduction litigation. You may or may not remember that while the Affordable Care Act required insurers to give discounts to lower-income purchasers of Affordable Care Act insurance, There was a dispute about whether Congress formally appropriated the money to pay insurers back. And in October of 2017, President Trump cut off the funding. Um, A workaround was created in nearly every state. So insurers basically came out even and lots of consumers actually came out ahead because the subsidies got bigger. And so they got bigger discounts than they were actually not necessarily they were entitled to it, but then they were intended to get under the law as it was originally written. Meanwhile, the insurers uh, went to something called the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. And in three cases now, judges have ruled that insurers are indeed owed this money back from the federal government, regardless of whether Congress appropriated it. And, and this is the important part, regardless of whether the insurers were technically made whole by the workaround. So mm-hmm. they didn't actually lose the money that they were fronting out for these discounts. Um So this is a really tricky situation. The workaround is already costing the federal government billions of dollars more than the discounts were because people who were 
earning more than those who are getting the discounts are now getting larger subsidies. Um, if the government ultimately has to pay these insurers back, might that pro- finally prompt Congress to fix this? Congress tried to fix it in 2018, and it sort of, you know, went down. And I think part of the reason it went down is because they had this workaround and the insurers weren't losing money. So do we think that maybe this might prompt something to happen? I don't know. I mean, Congress Congress could either appropriate the money or get rid of the piece of the Affordable Care Act that requires them to appropriate the money. But I don't know if either can, can get through both the House and Senate right now. I mean, the House has already shown interest in doing this and um, in it. And they're framing it as a, you know, we're undoing Trump's damage um, in this space. And it's part of a package of policy. But, of course, if you appropriate the money, right. you give them back the cost-sharing reductions, yes. the discounts, then the states would be able to, to get rid of the, the workaround. And then people who are getting these big discounts on bronze right. and gold plans mm-hmm. would – Go end up paying more. So there was when this all sort of got fixed last mm-hmm. year. There was a lot of the Democrats on Congress in Congress who'd been pushing this were like, maybe we don't want to do this because right. it's kind of working out better. Yeah, the workaround and ended up helping more people <laughs> and costing the federal government more money, yes. as I pointed out. Right, right. Um, but it's but I, I'm just wondering if although if they did appropriate the money, then the insurers couldn't just pocket it. They would have to pass it on to the customer. Apparently, yes, yes, they were. Well, but apparently, also, if they not just if Congress appropriates the money, if they get this money from the federal court of claims, which right. they are on, it, it's going to trigger the piece of the Affordable Care Act that says insurers can only keep what is it eighty or eighty five percent of the the premiums that they get, and this I guess this would technically be premiums, and so they'd have to start sending checks out. To consumers, so it, it could cause right. a big windfall. I mean, for they, some people, yeah. and then some people could lose access to their really great subsidized gold plan that they got yeah. because of the workaround. So. I mean, the whole thing is kind of a mess. It is a mess, and then at, I mean, some of these same insurers are also part of the risk corridor lawsuits, right? Yeah, and so they could get d- right, which was double another, bonanza, which was another <laughs> another chunk of money that the federal government promised to pay the um, the insurers. Well, that was changed by Congress, right? Um, that was, but there's still ongoing lawsuits. There are ongoing lawsuits <laughs> because in the original law, the the money was promised to the insurers, and they get to go to the well. In this case, I think they haven't gone to the court of federal claims, but yeah, there are you know while while we sort of talk about other things, there are billions and billions and billions of dollars at stake um, about you know people who about companies who have paid out money um, and have a legal entitlement to to being reimbursed. We'll see what happens. I'm just do you, I mean you guys sort of agree though that that even even if this ends up being this gigantic windfall that that Congress just has sort of moved on from trying to fix this problem. Yeah, I think that we've seen they haven't been able to fix it and I think that the I, I don't see the political will especially with a divided House and Senate and I, I don't know how that could get through both houses. Mm-hmm. Well, with the CSR payments, it was one of those things that, you know, I think a lot of us reported would, if they were to end, that it would be very catastrophic for consumers um, because that's what we were told. Um, and then, then insurers in, would pull out. That and, was and the that, other thing. And that was what they had threatened to do. Um, however, there was all this negotiation going on with states that actually, I would say, in the end, ended up being maybe one of the best things that could have happened for consumers because they get much less expensive premiums as a result. And so even though you have other actions happening by the Trump administration, such as, um, you know, and and the Republican Congress, such as ending the individual mandate, which was the fine on the uninsured, you then have, you know, the, the the 
the stick is less uh, of an incentive than the carrot because you get, you know, pretty high quality health care coverage um, for very little cost to yourself. And so that then ends up, you know, the individual mandate becomes less necessary if, you know, you find the coverage to and be that's affordable. pretty much what, what we discovered after getting rid of the individual mandate, that people who were getting subsidies um, signed up pretty much in the same numbers because it wasn't so much the mandate that was drawing them. It was the chance to get insurance, insurance that they could afford. But the sword hanging over all of this is that the Trump administration is now threatening to get rid of the workaround. <laughs> um, right. And so um, they they put out um, uh, a draft rule and they said they're exploring banning silver loading. They're not doing it for sure. Which yet. is what the workaround is but, technically called. Right. We will not explain it here. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. It's complicated, but it basically means that a lot of people have gotten a lot of cheap plans, um, and it's the workaround from not getting the CSR money. And you could see why the administration is exploring getting rid of it, because it's costing the federal government much more sure, money. Sure, sure. But that would then, that could maybe force Congress, because that could be the crisis that, that actually um, forces Congress to and come just, together and, and do just something. Yeah. Well, I think it was earlier this week, um, you reminded me, Alice, that the Energy and Commerce Committee leaders wrote to CMS mm-hmm. with concerns about the possibility of taking away silver loading. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're, you know, they're looking into it. Certainly it's got their attention. And, and the industry, too, has pretty much across the board written and said, please do not do this. <laughs> yeah, well, they had threatened to do it for mm-hmm. 2019, which they didn't do. So right. now they're talking about perhaps doing it for 2020. And just a reminder before we leave this, that what actually ended up hanging up this legislation last year was abortion, was the House, then Republican House, insisting on a permanent Hyde Amendment, permanent abortion ban in, in um, uh, federally subsidized private insurance in order to get this passed in the Senate. The Democrats in the Senate said, yeah, we're not doing that. And that was what that that was finally, you know, the rock that this crashed on. So mm-hmm. it's hard to, to see whether that would get resolved, too. Right. I mean, how do they just bypass the abortion question? Because the Affordable Care Act doesn't have the same kind of hide language that, um, you know, other spending bills have. And that's been kind of a sore point for conservatives for a long time. Um, so, you know, do they just kind of turn the other way? Do they ignore it? I know as a reporter, I'll be asking a lot. So it's difficult to see how they just kind of bypass that issue. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, which will continue to uh, to give us plenty to talk about <laughs> for as long as we go on with the podcast. All right. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Mine is from ProPublica, and um, it's by Marshall Allen. The title is Behind the Scenes, Health Insurers Use Cash and Gifts to Sway Which Better benefits employers choose. So it uh, pretty short here. It has to do with the, the um, bonuses that go out to private insurance brokers who uh, set up these contracts with employers. And it's a pretty interesting look at some of the, the perks that come with uh, with making these arrangements. Although one of the things I really liked about the story, is, and yes, it is, it is mostly about the sort of how that it is inflationary to to give the, the the brokers have an incentive to push employers into more expensive plans because they'll get not just the perks, but they'll get bigger. But, you know, um, uh, the, the way they get paid is based on how much it costs. But it, it pointed out that in some places they're doing sort of more of a flat fee payment, which gives the broker 
an incentive to maybe get the employer into a you know more cost-effective plan, and it doesn't hurt the broker. And it's like, wow, not only is he pointing out a problem, he's pointing out a potential way to fix it. I guess we'll have to see if it uh, uh, you know is is picked up elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Employer plans don't get a lot of attention, but I mean, and yet a they lot cover us... more than half the people. <laughs> right. in the a lot of us have employer plans, so um, yeah. yeah, it's certainly. Um, Alice. Um, I have a piece by Anna. And um, it's it's sort of back to what we were discussing about the FDA saying, hey, we're really going to take action in these in these uh, spaces now, um, even though we haven't before and crack down on some of these very shady treatments that are being marketed and becoming popular. And this is about people who are uh, taking uh, companies that are marketing therapies that take young people's blood and inject them into older people. Which... Haven't there been science fiction movies about this? It sounds like <laughs> vampires, honestly. But yeah. <laughs> um, And they're marketing it as cures for all kinds of things. Parkinson's, MS. Or, and it's just not uh, proven at all that there's any benefit. And there are significant risks. When you put someone else's blood in your body, your body can react very badly to that. It's an issue with blood transfusions and organ transplants and all kinds of things. Um, And uh, so there are big risks. And um, so there's going to be much tougher regulation out of the FDA, apparently. Anna. Uh, Mine is from our podmate, Sarah Cliff. um, And this is hit by a city bus and hit with a $27,660 city hospital bill. Um, It's another in her excellent series um, looking at Um, surprise billing, but specifically at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Um, You know, she was the first to kind of show that they were not accepting any private insurance. um, A public hospital public hospital. accepted no private insurance. And so then this this man who was just walking down the sidewalk and gets hit by a pole that is hanging off a city bus and has to go to the hospital and ends up with this huge bill is – Another another example. He he. You know, you can find out what happened to him. I guess in the story, I won't spoil it. But, um, it's funny when I saw the headline. It's like, wait, didn't I just read this story two weeks ago? It's like, no, it's another gigantic emergency room bill from that hospital. hospital. Yeah. yeah. So definitely, it's worth a read. Um, also, because Sarah kind of goes through a little bit of the the um, reaction she's gotten, and a lot of patients have been have been helped, and their bills have been canceled out. But yeah, and and I know we say this every time we do a bill of the month, and every time we talk about Sarah's story. It's like, really, it's journalists. People shouldn't have to be able to grab the attention of a journalist in order to get this fixed. Right. Although I am very happy for the people who have gotten them fixed because right. a journalist has stepped in. But there's a lot more people than there, there are, are journalists can, to do this. Can write articles about every single one. Yes. Mine is a story from Stat News. It's called Everyone Is at Fault with Insulin Prices Skyrocketing. There's Plenty of Blame to Go Around by Nicholas Florco. The first part of the story is about stuff most of us who study this already know about insulin. There are three giant makers and they keep raising prices. But the rest of the story is about why there's so little generic insulin, even though insulin is now a century old. And the reason has to do mostly with the way Congress tried to make it easier to make generics of so-called biologic drugs as part of the Affordable Care Act. Um, And I didn't realize there was generic insulin, but now they're about to put a hard stop on the old system for approving generic insulin. And it's going to go to the new system with biologics, which insulin technically is, even though it hasn't been treated that way. So there's this sort of weird place in the middle where people don't want to, companies don't want to put in applications because if it doesn't get approved by the time the deadline comes around, they'll have to start over. Um, So it's, you know, yet another uh, way that, uh, 
uh, drug pricing is complicated and it never works the way you think it's going to. And really, insulin should not be this expensive. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email your questions or comments. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Elstein. At Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.